You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm bringing you a fascinating conversation with Matt Besser. This was recorded earlier this year at the Montreal Comedy Festival. Matt was kind enough to come along and talk to us about improv, about his own stand-up comedy uh, and uh, as well as being a comic. And I, I saw him after this interview, in fact, I wish I'd seen it before, we recorded a, a TV show together at Just for Laughs and he walked on and improvised his set. He's that kind of stand-up comic, really excellent um, and as well as that, he, he holds the distinction of being one of the four co-founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade, the UCB, one of the most influential improv comedy troops ever to come out of the States. Uh, Matt fought, founded that along with Amy Poehler, Matt Walsh and Ian Roberts. We're going to talk a little bit about that and a bit more about the origins of improv as we know it, uh, the work of Del Close and how that went on to inform uh, everything that followed after. And we also uh, have a slight difference of opinion about Keith Johnston, who's on a very different uh, tack improvisationally. Uh, loads to enjoy here. Just a quick reminder. It's not a reminder because I haven't told you yet, but a pre-minder, if you will, that uh, Matt Besser's stand-up special, Pot Humour, is brand new. It's just out now and you can get it wherever you get video. Um, a video on demand, that is. It's on uh, Apple, it's on Amazon Direct TV, VOD, Spectrum VOD, and it's even on Xbox. I don't know if that's a playable version, I doubt it. And uh, Matt's podcast, Improv for Humans, is available wherever podcasts are found. This is Matt Besser. So we've just, uh, you've just uh, performed in a live version of Improv for Humans here at the Montreal yes. Comedy Festival. Um, which is, you said you've taken a decision to interview them in character. The podcast is kind of quite freeform. The podcast is whatever you want it to be. Well, normally in Proper Humans, it's a lot like our uh, our stage show at the UCB Theatre called ASCAT. Yeah. Um, which is, at ASCAT, we'll take a suggestion and the monologist will tell a story and then we'll do three scenes based on the story and then we'll do that again. Take and the suggestion, suggestion is just one word. One word. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And they'll tell a real story. Um, so my podcast is based on that. And we'll get a suggestion usually off of Twitter if it's a live show from the audience. And then one of the four of us, it's usually four people, will tell a story. And then we'll do some improv. It's usually one scene based off it. And then we'll re- repeat. Um, I have done improv for humans here at JFL, I think, like three or four years ago. And I can't remember who was with me then, but it was, it was three improvisers. But this time, there just happened. There weren't many improvisers here on this Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I booked the Slar Brothers, who aren't necessarily improvisers, but friends of mine. And this guy who I just met, Thomas Middleton. I'm not even sure of his last name because I just met him an hour ago. Okay, two hours okay. ago. Sure. But uh, he's from UCB in New York, and he's here on character, uh, the new faces. New faces characters, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I decided, since they aren't improvisers per se, I know they can do characters and improvise as a character, whereas it's a little more difficult to improvise scenes just from scratch versus I know my character and I can improvise 
the bit of my character. So the Scar Brothers decide to be uh, two agents called the Marx Brothers, and Thomas uh, was the JFL mascot, which he calls Geisel. Yeah, which it uh, was actually Victor. I missed the very beginning of the show and the improvisation of the name Geisel. I worked out who he was being throughout right. before it became explicit. Someone um, did call him out on that and go, we've always heard your name was Victor, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which we decided was pretty Anglo-centric <laughs> to make a goblin have a yeah. uh, very English name like Victor. And so during that show, one of the Sklar brothers, and forgive me, I don't know the names, Randy and... Jason. Jason, Randy and Jason. Um, referred to you as, I can't remember the exact way he put it, but he referred to you as like one of our greatest improvisers or one of the... Yeah, that was offensive him saying one of. <laughs> I well, agree with you. Listen, this is the this is <laughs> this is you for the. I, I guess you're not so famous in the UK where the majority of my listeners are, but you are known. You're one of the the founders of UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade. You've been you talked there about doing stand up for the first time in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You're you are part of the comedy firmament. Okay, I'm tricking you into picking yourself I did, up. I did. Uh, start in the late 80s and early 90s in stand-up. And maybe your UK listeners don't know, but in maybe it was the same in, in the UK. I don't know. But in the United States, there was a huge stand-up boom in the 80s. You know, that like Sam Kinison, Bobcat Goldthwait, and that whole crew was. And, it, it, and stand-up clubs just popped up everywhere. It was crazy. And, uh, like, I was, I moved to Chicago. There were 12 stand-up clubs just in the city of Chicago. And now they're not. There's probably four or whatever. But at that point, there was so many. And every city was like that. Too many stand-up clubs. Like little clubs? Or were they, like, proper clubs, chicken in a basket? Some were small. But, uh, like, in Chicago at the time, the Improv, Catch a Rising Star, uh, uh, The Funny Firm. Um, uh, the one that's still there, Zany. So these are all huge names in stand-up clubs. Those were all the biggest clubs, Catch, Improv. Have you heard of Catch a Rising Star? Uh, I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. It was one of the biggest ones okay. back in the day. But yeah, to answer your question, all the legit places, every city had probably the legit clubs or the big name clubs. And then what, like you're saying, uh, small clubs that might do blues on a given night of the week too. Mm-hmm. But uh, <clears throat> in other words, there's this boom, it was crazy. Me being in college in the middle of the boom, I was like, I want to be a stand-up. I didn't even know what improv was. I literally did not have any idea about the form of long-form improv. Mm-hmm. I knew short form from whose line is it anyway, but I didn't know. That, so that existed at the time? I never know because we had a version of – did we have the same version of whose line that you had? Well, well, I'm talking about your version. Yeah, okay, gotcha. That, oh, right, that, right. That's, that's all I knew. Okay. Or that's all most people I'd say. If you said improv, they would sure. say – Whose line they would assume what we call short form improv. Yeah, yeah. I assume we call it the same thing. I don't know. Game based improv. Sure. Um, so I didn't even know what it was. I did stand up. I started uh, during the boom, and of course, in the early nineties, it, it all started to die too. Like all those clubs started to die yeah. off. There was there was way too many people doing stand up. It was crazy. But this was in the middle of me starting, and I moved to Chicago to do it, and. That's where the hub of improv is. That's pretty much where this long-form improv was born, uh, is arguably Chicago. Mm-hmm. Some other cities, too, but you would have to say that that's where 
all long form improv comes from. And, and, and that, so just that origin in Chicago, were there kind of some sort of cultural factors native to Chicago that created that? Or was no that question. just random? Okay. Uh, there was the University of Chicago and a lot of theater people around that scene who may not necessarily have gone to the university, but hung out. And uh, Elaine May, Mike Nichols, do you know those names? Not so much. Well, Mike Nichols you do, because he's okay. the famous director. He did uh, uh, um, uh, Miss, uh, Mrs. Robinson. He did... Uh, the Graduate. Uh, the Graduate. Got exactly. you, yes, I do know. Uh, yeah, okay. uh, he, uh, Elaine May, uh, she, 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 her and Nichols are kind of known as the first improvisers because they had this duo called Nichols and May, and this is the 60s, and uh, they would do sold-out shows. And uh, a lot of it was sketch, but some of it was give us a word and we'll improvise. So th- they were the first successful improv duo, and they came out of Chicago. And also a guy who came out of Chicago was Del Close, and uh, and that it was kind of a threesome because Dell was in love with Elaine, and so was Michael, and that, that's a very interesting okay. story all in itself. Sure, there's a book called Improv Nation, which covers uh, Nichols and May a lot. But uh, anyway, Dell he didn't he didn't Elaine May directed Ishtar. That's she's okay. famous yeah, for that, sure, sure. that wreck, uh, but she's also directed some great movies. But uh, anyway. He uh, he became the guru and never left Chicago, really. And he was the one who really developed it. And there was this big comedy feud between Second City and the guy who ran it, Bernie Sollins, and Del Close, who was also at Second City. And Del always believed improv can be its own show. And Bernie Sollins at Second City believed, no, it's only a tool for making sketch comedy. It's a rehearsal tool. Okay. It should not be its own show. People should not pay for it. Okay. And they were very adamantly, publicly feuding about it for okay. years. Until, There's no ground on that, is there? There's no compromise. Well, the funny thing is Bernie Sollins ran Second City for many years, and Dell was hired and fired from Second City many times. Dell worked for, he was on the original SNL as a consultant. He was on the original SCTV as a consultant. This guy is like behind the scenes of all mm-hmm. these major comedies. So he would get hired and fired all the time. He's also, if you've seen the movie Wired about John Belushi, supposedly the guy who did heroin with him and gave okay. him the heroin. So he, he has a long heroin past. Sure. Junkie, unfortunate junkie past. So he... Even as being a genius, he was a troublesome junkie, too. So he would be directing Second City and have serious alcohol and heroin problems and get fired. Um, so his personality, and he was also a cantankerous motherfucker, and, okay. and to me in a good way, but he rubbed a lot of people wrong. So he was this guru of improv, but fought the sketch establishment. So it was like improv versus big sketch. Okay, of. okay. And Bernie Sollins, second season was where all the money was, you know, in comedy, in sketch. So if you wanted to make money doing sketch, you had to go through Second City, obviously. No one else is doing it. Until the late 80s into early 90s when this place called Improv Olympic opened up. This woman, Sharna Halpern, ran it and basically took Dell, who was fired at the time, who was not working with Second City. It was just this genius without a home. 
and took him in and he became the guru for Improv Olympic and started this long form called the Herald. Yeah. Which has become, you know, the, the thing that everyone tries to learn when you're starting out doing long form improv. It's really hard to learn, but it's one of these things that if you learn how to do it, you can pretty much do anything. And the Herald, is, as I understand it, is a sort of a structure whereby every, all of the performers share a group understanding of how something might unfold. Um, you could maybe apply that definition to my, a lot of improv shows like ASCAP, but the format of the Herald in particular is you do, you start with getting us one suggestion from the audience, just a word, and then you do an opening with the whole group where you generate ideas based on that word hopefully funny ideas. And then you start three scenes, three separate scenes based on three separate funny ideas. You do three scenes and uh, then you do a second beat of those three scenes uh, where you heighten and explore what we call heighten and explore the premise that's already there. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of doing our whole course in a yeah, great. <laughs> Ten minutes here. But Perfect. You, you take what the focus of the funny is. Like if you look at any sketch that's on SNL and you say, what's the, what, what essentially is this scene about? What's essentially, it's not a collection of funny lines, like in a sitcom, there's one focus of the funny in each like sketch one, you one see. one game being played. That's what we call yeah. the game. Okay. You say that, that's Dell's language. Like okay. you, even you saying the game and the scene, like where'd you get that from? Uh, I think I got that through clowning, through like... Uh, but I'm telling you, that sure. comes from Dell. Okay. That comes from this improv language, the, okay. saying the game of this scene. Um, so you getting in clown college makes me go, they got that somehow from Chicago uh, well, I, and, and Dell. That's interesting because there must there are presumably uh, discoveries being made all over the world. Although this, I mean, it's certainly American improv is known. Sure, there's like Keith the, Johnstone. He did sure, this thing I've, called I've, improv. I've read that book. I mean, that was a... Totally different thing, though. Sure, okay. okay. Yeah, what he does, I would, any any impro and Keith Johnstone hearing this are going to hate me. Ah, okay, go on. I do not respect impro. Okay. Oh, hold on. I respect it, but I don't like it. It's not at all what I do. It's not at all what Dell does. Dell didn't like Keith. Okay. Keith didn't like that. This is, I have no idea about any of this. Okay. It was competing improv philosophies. Yeah. Keith's whole philosophy is based on story and narrative. Okay. Uh, Dell's is not. It's based on the game of the scene. Mm -hmm. When you see a sketch, do you, on SNL, do you say, oh, that was a great story. I really enjoyed the story of that sketch. Nope. No sure. one does that. Sure. They just say, that was funny. Yeah. Th what they're saying is, I like the game of that scene. That you don't look at a sketch like, let's tell a story that starts here, it has a middle and an end. Sure, I sure. don't look at a sketch that way. I have to say, the stuff that I loved most in the Keith Johnston <clears throat> book was the earlier part of the book where he is talking about the techniques through which you uh, allow yourself to stop editing yourself. And then you allow yourself, you give yourself permission to say the first thing on your mind. Okay, I, like I think that that's too. the stuff that made the biggest impact on me. I like that I, too. I, that's, that's called that's, getting out of your head. That's another yeah. phrase that's been in the improv community for a while of like you're, you're in, uh, like I said, I started out as a standup and then did improv. And when I started doing improv, this woman, Sharna, when she found out I was that ran the improv Olympics, she said, Oh, you're a standup. You're not going to do this. Well, <laughs> yeah, sure. she literally told me that like, and never tell someone they're not going to do something well, cause then they'll just prove you wrong. But <laughs> and, and what did she mean by that? What did she expect? That, that standups, they're used to being in their own head. 
I don't have to share what's in my head with anybody else, except for when I step up to the microphone, then I'm sharing it. In other words, as soon as I'm on stage with someone else, then I'm working with someone else. And, and the funny that's in my head, I have to share with them. And there needs to be a technique for sharing stuff. And that's why when people see improv shows and they're impressed, they're like, how did you guys do that? Yeah. It's like, well, there's this technique we're doing. There's this format that we're doing that you can't just, you can't just be funny or people might think you can, but I don't, I don't think you can just be funny and step on stage and be a great improviser. And you can be funny as shit. The funniest standup in the world, but be a really shitty improviser because you're only used to being in your own head. Because you only need to be in okay. your own head. Okay. I don't have to be on stage and think of a way to create a scene with someone else. And and she was right because there was like a period of a year where I had this attitude of, I wouldn't say it out loud, but in my head I was like, what I'm about to say is funny. Yeah, okay. What I'm about to say is funny. I hope this guy on stage with me gets it and is as funny as me. I wasn't even thinking, let's both of us create something funny together. Sure. I was just thinking, I'm a stand-up. I, I get laughs every night. I know I can get laughs. So yeah. here's a funny idea. Let's see if he can keep up with me. It was a really bad attitude to have. Yeah. The difference between transmit you were transmitting and getting excited about transmitting rather than being excited about listening yes, and sharing. And, exactly. Okay. And it took me, because you, you don't always get punished for it because you're still being funny on stage okay. and the eyes are still laughing at you. You're getting you rewarded. Not, yes, yeah, so yeah. you might not be creating a great scene that you could write up and have it be a sketch, but you may be getting laughs in the moment based on doing a funny voice or based on doing references or being jokey or several other ways of being funny that don't involve the other person on stage with mm-hmm. you. But as you realize, as you become in a group, you're like, I don't like that from other people, so why are other people going to like it from me? I want someone I can trust. Trust is a big word of yeah. like, I'm not going to go out there and present you something and you're going to undercut me somehow for your own joke. If that's going to happen, I don't like working with you. I don't trust you. Mm -hmm. So I want to be in a group where I throw out something and know you're going to build with me. And it took me at least a year. And I was on stage one time with someone who I thought, and this is a snobby way to put it, but I thought was as funny as me. Yeah. Because I think, you know, a lot of stand-ups and you, you have to go on stage going, I'm the funniest guy in the room. You have yeah. to have that attitude, sure. you know? So uh, that that's the attitude I had. And this day I was on stage with someone who I respected. We started doing a scene. I heard something he said, uh, and it occurred to me, that's funny. I want to build on that because I have an idea on how to build on that versus what funny thing do I have in my head? What yeah, funny thing do I have okay, in my head? Okay. And it was an epiphany. And I'll never forget. I, can, I know where I was standing. I know who the guy was. I know who the teacher was. And it wasn't even about the teacher pointing out something to me. It was just about realizing something on stage. It's like building was so much more fun than me trying to force my idea onto this other person building together. My improv changed from that moment on. I remember and I was in a good group and uh, a guy in the group told me after the next show or a show very soon after that, Hey man, you're in a lot better. What happened? Like, and I don't even think I could put it into words at the time. Like you don't, at the time, I don't think I was mature enough to go, you've had a shitty attitude about being on stage till now. I think it's just something that organically happened. And mm. in hindsight, I look back on my younger self and I was, I was like, you were, your ego was way out of control when you started improv. Sure. And that's, uh, part of, that's part of the genetic makeup of a stand-up. Like you say, I'm the funniest guy in the room. To survive, you need to I know. have that ego at least as an option. 
Yeah, you, especially when you're starting, because if you don't, the when you bomb, it's it, it may ruin you. So you you have to you have to believe. Um, yeah, it's, have, it's the audience's fault. I bombed. Yeah, I had me. to grow. Oh, that was a bad room. Right. Yeah. Versus yeah, that was yeah, me yeah. and I'm not funny. So yeah. you eventually have to get that attitude. And to me, if you don't have a killer set in like the first five times you go up, I don't know how you'd survive. Yeah. Like I, the first time I went up, I went up in front of, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm bragging dear listeners. I, he told me to brag. Before <laughs> this. this is completely but, uh, appropriate. But uh, it, the first time I went up was in college. And the only reason I did it was because there was a contest. And if you won the contest, you'd, get a free spring break to Jamaica. And I just want to go to Jamaica and get high. So I was like, let's do this stand-up contest. It was this gum called Sticklets, I think. And uh, they were doing a national stand-up contest. And they came to the university that was right next to my college. And uh, there were 2,000 people in the audience that night. So imagine the first time you go up. Like, I've had very few 2,000. I've probably had... 20 of those my whole career yeah, and yeah. this is my first time going up because <laughs> the university of massachusetts it was a giant university and uh i went up and my my best friend was also doing it that night and the host was judd apatow how crazy is that and this is when he's pretty much he's only a, probably three years into doing stand-up at yeah. this point so he's he's a nobody okay. he's like adam sandler's roommate at this point yeah um and it's funny because I'm, I'm friends with Judd now, and I, I sent him a review of that night <laughs> where I did well, and my friend did well, and we were both singled out in the review as doing well. Judd was called out in the review for, for being a stage hog and doing too much material. <laughs> and uh, I did well, but it was only on accident because I was so nervous from being on stage the first time, being in front of that many people that my hands were shaking, like visibly shaking. I could not manipulate the microphone stand to my liking. So it looked like I was struggling and I was stuttering. I was like, uh, I was, I was shaking. I don't think I was flop sweating, but I was stuttering. I was shaking. People thought I was doing a Bobcat Goldthwait impression <laughs> to my benefit. <laughs> and I was doing my material, which I had totally memorized word for word, which is a bad idea. I, it took me a couple of years to learn. Don't memorize your act word for word. It's just going to make you stumble. It's rather yeah. get a gist of your act. Yeah. Um, but it was in my head word for word. And I remember getting lost in my act. It was something about Captain Kirk and hooking up with green aliens with three breasts. I don't know what it was. It was something stupid like that. But I was like skipping around in my material. Like I saw the script of my material in my head and I was like trying to find it and skip it. Like, like my material wasn't any kind of order that made sense. But to the audience, I just looked like this manic, like I was doing a character. Like, so they thought almost like I was just doing this all as a choice. Like I just go up and do a wild energy. So anyway, it was a wreck of a set. I wish I had a recording of it, but I did great. And, and the other communities, believe me, they were in the same boat I was. They were all starting, so they all sucked. We all sucked. But I guess I sucked the least, so I did really well. And it was in front of 2,000. What you have? 2,000 people. incredible. 
laughing at you, you're like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. You often hear of someone having a killer gig within, like you say, within their first five, because that's, they need, you Mm -hmm. know, you need that to go on. But it's normally 10 men and a dog in in the middle of nowhere. 2,000 people watching you, by your standards at the time, murder is, I mean, that's incredible. And I didn't have that feeling for a long time after that either. <laughs> I was going to say, how long did that sustain you for? How many bad gigs did you... Well, like, did you that was in college, and I didn't do anything else in college, but as soon as I graduated, I mean, that changed my whole life. That that night, I was like, I want to do this. And like I said, stand-up was a huge boom right now. So it seemed like not a too crazy idea. It's the, Everyone se- was it's the secret that. door. The little door opens up in the universe, and someone goes, this way. Yeah, this, so, this so I was like, I'm going to do it. My friend was was going to uh, spend the summer in Boulder, Colorado, and I had nowhere to go. And I was like, I'll just go to Boulder, and I'll start doing stand-up in Boulder and Denver, and I'll just try it out. So I, I did a – there was a strip club in Boulder called the Bus Stop. Bust up. Bus Stop. So I went there every Sunday. They had these things called Blue Laws. We can't sell alcohol on Sundays. They don't have strippers on Sundays. They have just stand-up. So I'd go, and and I was also just beginning. So I was always the first person out. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the clientele, uh, English was their second language, and they didn't know that Sundays had blue laws, and they thought there was stripping there. Yep. So I had over and over the experience of, ladies and gentlemen, Matt Bester walking out and people going, where's oh, the stripping? What's, what is this? So that, that was... That was my first regular gig was that my first bomb was at the Comedy Works in in Denver. Um, And I'll never forget that, too. Like it was a packed it was a packed room. And uh, I think we only all got four minutes. I don't think I got one laugh. And that was at the point that if you don't get a laugh, it just starts. You can let it crush you. And I did get that flop sweat and. Now I would know how to tell my younger self to get out of that. But at the point I didn't, it just went, it was just a complete all crickets bomb in front of a packed house. And that almost ended my career the way that college gig started it. Cause yeah. if my, my buddy who was there in the audience, he's like, let's go get a, let's go buy you a shot after the show. And he buys me a shot. He's like, I don't think you should ever try that again. That was, <laughs> that was really hard to watch you do that. Just if you could pop your head through time. What would you say to, to bombing Matt Besser at, at that age? You know, in, in specifically well, I let the in that audience know that I was bombed. I, I let them, they could see I was bombing. And what I've told younger comedians that I've seen who give a shit about what I would say, I guess, but that, that I hate it when I see stand-ups uh, when they're working out material start to blame the audience for what, like while they're on stage like say something about the audience or you guys don't get it or, or even if they don't blame the audience and they're blaming themselves, they're like, I suck. And unless it's Kindler making a whole act. out of it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't, I think it's a waste of everyone's time. I think it's the waste of the audience's time. It undercuts whoever's going to follow you because it's bringing the energy down. And also stage time is precious. Just do your act. And that, that's why I always say to people, just do your fucking act. Cause at the very least you're getting the words of your act out and you're, you're getting some practice with it. You saying, I'm not funny or you guys don't get it. Like, how's that fucking help? What do you learn doing? You're not learning anything doing that. You, and all it does is, is, uh, uh, make their ego feel a little bit better in that moment, but it doesn't make you a better stand up. 
and it really bothers me. And I did it. I think it's a it's a it's a knee jerk beginning comic thing to do. But it's like get over yourself, do your fucking material, and don't let them see you sweat because as soon as they do, they're done with you. Mm. So how did you discover improv from that? You were you like what was the what was the journey from? I, like I said, I didn't. This? this is before the internet. I feel really old, but you know, this is so. I went, and this is the stand-up boom. So I was like, I'm going to go to one of the bigger cities and start doing stand-up. And I was too intimidated to go to L.A. or New York. They seemed too big. So Chicago was like, it was one of the biggest cities that had a ton of stand-up coming out of it. So it was a logical, great place for a stand-up to start in that time. So I went to Chicago specifically to start doing stand-up. Didn't know it was improv. I remember getting there. And I knew what Second City was in the sketch they did there. And I was interested in that, too, because I loved Kids in the Hall. And I mm. wanted to be the next yeah, I part of the next Kids in the Hall. Yeah. And that was about that same time period that they were really popular. So uh, I would go to shows there. And, and then you started to hear about improv. They would do an improv set, theoretically, at the end of their uh, sketch set. And then I heard about, and through reading listings, I heard about the Improv Olympic. I went to the Improv Olympic. I saw a show and my life changed. I was like, I cannot believe what they just did. And I did that thing. I went up to him. I was like, all right. How'd you, I went up to Tim Meadows, who was nobody at that point. And Dave Keckner. I don't know. Even know yeah, I know Dave Keckner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they were just nobodies. At the point Chris Farley was on mm-hmm, stage. Mm-hmm. So the first time I saw improv, Chris Farley was in. So imagine that. You're like, wow, these guys are on another level of funny. And uh, how do they do this? So I went up to Tim. And I was like, how how you guys do that? You definitely wrote that. There's no way you could have. You guys sang that whole song together. How could the, you guys have sung that song together before? Right. No, no. It's all made up. I was I thought they were lying. Yeah. Like the way you'd talk to a magician. It's magic. <laughs> all right, buddy. Then I took a class and I realized, oh, there is a skill, there is a format. And then soon I was with Dell, who was like, because this was back when it was very nascent. There weren't many people in the scene at all. It was all straight white men. I mean, it was such a small, specific, not diverse group at all in the beginning. It like even just getting women on it, just one woman on a team was mm. a challenge back then. Mm. Just because they weren't many in the scene, it wasn't any judgment. It was just like they got better they, things to do with their time. I, well, I don't know. <laughs> healthy, it wasn't, it wasn't, it social wasn't, relationships. Well, also think about stand-up. There weren't a lot of female stand-ups. Like mm-hmm. women weren't treated the same in comedy back then. Um, maybe they're still not, but they definitely didn't get respect back then in the improv world. And uh, I say Tim Meadows was there. He was about the only black guy for miles in that scene. Uh, were there any Asians or Hispanics? I think not. Horatio Sands eventually. But but I'm saying it was just a really mm. small, not diverse scene at that point. Um, but once I got a taste of it, I was like, this is what I'm better at than stand-up. This is, I like playing off of someone. Like even last night, I did, I did Andy Kindler's alt show. And I asked him if I could do the bit with him. I was like, don't leave the stage. I'd rather play off you than yeah. just do the character uh to the audience i just enjoy working with someone else more which is not as i've told you is not how my mindset was when i started 
So this is Matt. Loads more from Matt coming up soon, including a bit of a, uh, a delve into some of his own psychology, his own bad habits in improv. Uh, and we also identify the one type of comic that Matt will not perform with. So all of that to come. Uh, remember, Pot Humour is available. Matt's new stand-up special, that's available wherever uh, stand-up comedy is found online. Um, and just a couple of other bits and bobs. I'm in Estonia at the moment. I'm in Tallinn, at the Tallinn Comedy Festival. So my, my great thanks to Andrus for bringing me out here. Um, it's my third time in Estonia, and it's my first time tonight hosting a gala in front of 1,500 Estonian people where every other act on the bill is Estonian and will be speaking Estonian. So that will be... Uh, no, you haven't gone mad or fallen asleep. I don't speak any Estonian. Um, but uh, the language skills of the people here is as perfect as the free Wi-Fi which pervades the city. Um, I can't wait for that. So um, that's really good fun. I'll talk to you a little bit about that. Um, I had a lovely show last night. And I'll talk to you about that in the postamble. Um, Andrus did mention at dinner last night that he guiltily confessed to listening to the podcast on 1.5 speed. He said for a long time this podcast was the only one he didn't listen to uh, on 1.5. He actually took his time with it. But now he's a father of two and has uh, got to get a lot of things done. I hereby extend my blessing to anyone that wants to listen to this show on 1.5 speed. I've been doing it myself with uh, some audio books recently, uh, notably Philippa Perry, the book you wish your parents had read, um, and also a Seth Godin book called This Is Marketing. I've had a very long drive recently. I listened to them all on 1.5, and it's like all the information gets rammed into your head. So uh, if you are already listening at 1.5 speed, then uh, you might not be able to understand this bit, but I don't mind, and it's absolutely fine with me. Furthermore, if you are in the Facebook group, there's a brilliant conversation going on there at the moment with over 150 posts about people's favourite short jokes. Um, I'm going to read some examples of ones I'd never heard before. And they're some of these very best ones, what I love about the people in the podcast Facebook group, everyone's very polite and they're very often uh, crediting the jokes. B-N-A-G, that's bang out of order. Tim Vine, what a joke. I'd never heard that one before. Um, an old Stephen Fry line from I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, submitted by Elliot Clark. That's Countryside. The Murder of Piers Morgan, fantastic. Rupert Nevin has uh, chimed in with a favourite from the Viz Letters page. Avoid the expense of personalised number plates. Mr KBL941Y Lincoln. <laughs> Lovely. And of course, our wonderful Mitch Hedberg uh, said this one sent in by... Sent in? It's not sent in, it's the internet. Posted. Posted by Stephen Trumbull. Uh, I used to do drugs. I still do. But I used to too. Oh, Mitch Hedberg. What a wonderful joke writer. So all of those in the Facebook group, if you would like to look or contribute to those, it remains an extremely friendly corner of the internet. So uh, please do find it by typing it into a, a Facebook uh, you know, the searchy bit. You know how that works. Um, also, if you are in the Insiders Club, there's no extras from this particular episode. We just did an hour and ten straight through. Um, however, there is an episode that I'm going to release on the Insiders feed uh, with a man called Sheldon, who is, a, I mean, A, he's a man called Sheldon. That's fantastic. But he is a bit of a marketing whiz and he is touring with his own band, the Lancashire Hot Pots, and they are doing incredible things with marketing. So we do a You Interview Stew where he talks to me about my own thoughts on marketing and strategy and things like that. And it's a really interesting interview because he knows, like, I'm keen to learn, but he's very... Uh, um, He's a very good teacher in that he is happy. I don't, I'm not being disingenuous about this. I'm just wording it carefully. It was like after the interview, my wife had heard it from within the house and was like, 
are you all right? Because <laughs> I think I did a bit of like, well, I don't know what I'm doing with this and I don't know what I'm doing with that. So I think if you are in the Insiders Club, it will be a particularly interesting chat. So uh, other content coming soon there as well with uh, Alan Oakes about the music industry and uh, touring as a musician. We're doing an interview, Stu, about that as well. Plenty of stuff coming along, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for all of that stuff. Um, that's that. Let's get back to Matt Besser, who you can find at mattbesser.com and at Matt Besser at Twitter and Instagram. He's either a very early adopter or he has a very unique name. Let's get back to Matt. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What um, was it? Dumb luck that you fell in with Dell's camp as opposed yes. to the other camp. Well, what camp are we talking about? Oh, Johnstone. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that didn't really. Uh, no, no, you were talking about the difference between Second City, Second City and what Dell was doing. Well, everyone was doing both, really. Okay, like it was like I said, it was a very small scene. So everyone was trying to get in the Second City, and if you wanted to do improv. You were probably doing Improv Olympic. There was another place called The Annoyance. I don't know if you've heard of them. They started the Real Life Brady Bunch. Richter, Andy Richter came from there. Uh, Matt Walsh. Anyway, there, there were like three three main comedy theaters, but Second City was the only place uh, where you could get a career because that was where SNL would come and okay. look at everybody. So everyone, everyone wanted to get into Second City, but everyone also knew Dell was the man and he was way ahead of everybody on this new thing. Like it was like it was it was dumb luck and it was crazy. It's cool to be at the beginning of something like you are at the beginning of podcasting. You're going to be able to look back in 10 years ago. I was there at the beginning of UK mm-hmm. podcasting. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's cool thing to be there. So I very much lucked out being with Dell in Chicago at that time. And he hadn't directed anyone in a long time. And he, cause he was such a fuck up as a human, as with his addictions and everything, uh, people didn't want him. He just wasn't a responsible director, you know, in general. So, uh, when he started directing our group, it was a great honor. And unlike a lot of acting classes I've taken or other improv classes, when you always left his class going, wow, he just gave me some, he just gave me something I can use. And I'd never, like I'd taken a, a couple acting classes at that point where I was like, I don't know what just happened in there. I don't, I hear what they're saying, but they're not giving me anything that either isn't obvious or that I believe I can apply. Like I, 
I would always in an acting class going, I don't think I did that right. Or I didn't get that. Sure, or, sure. or it's a farce or whatever. And this was the first class I'd, and I'd taken a few improv classes before Dell where I was like, this seems like a waste of time. This seems really corny. Cause I think a lot of improv is kind of corny. Um, but when we, he was no nonsense and he was all about taking your comedy from real life. And when I say no nonsense, like if I was just a, you know, a 20 year old with zero life experience at that point. So we'd like tell a story and he'd be like, that's bullshit. And then there'd be another guy in class. There was this one guy class who's older than the rest of us who was a janitor in a prison. And he, and he wasn't that funny of a guy, but he had these stories that were amazing and it was like the teacher's pet. So all these other guys who are younger and funnier, arguably, had a, had no life experience to talk yeah. about and, and pull the truth of their comedy from. But this guy did, and Dell would always love his stories and always gravitate to whoever had the most interesting life. That's interesting. There's parallels there between that. I mean, I've done kind of clown classes where you're working on something and it's shit and the 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 person teaching the class is sat there. I mean, <laughs> one guy would sit there and go, like that, as you know, because you're not being funny. So mm-hmm. he's doing he's doing a plane crashing mime and a kind of a noise. And I, I think that the, the thing that uh, listeners of this show will be most familiar with is Philippe Gaulier in, in France. Are you aware? I don't know if you're aware of Gaulier. So he is this famously irascible kind of character, similarly kind of insulting and haranguing the people mm-hmm. who are trying to be funny. He studied under a guy called Jacques Lecoq, uh, at Jacques Lecoq in France, and they that's where I've got the idea of the game Le Jeu from. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of have a, a clowning thing. Um, and, and a whole route that was obviously developed in, in parallel, you know, sort of discovering the games, discovering what, what things to... Now this makes me want... Because now it sounds like you could be saying, oh, no, in, in the world of clowning, we've had this phrase too. Now, now I want someone to research this yeah, what's and, the link? and go back. Is there a link or... Or is it just is parallel development? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I find it hard to believe across? that it's just coincidence. Yeah. Because even, well, I mean, even is... the word game becomes confusing because I, I I was calling a short form the who's line. Mm-hmm. We call those games. Sure. But we don't find... But we don't say it. Ha- it's not, we're using the same word "game," but we're using yeah. it in different way. So it's, yeah. it's confusing to people who aren't in improv. They're like, "Oh, I there's I know improv games." We're like, no, "Not games like that." Yeah, sure. Not that, and that's why I like to use when I'm teaching. I like to say the focus of the funny, that because that makes people maybe yeah. understand it a little quicker. And then I'm like, "That's what we call finding the game." But I wonder if there is some something essential about it that you, that could be discovered in parallel, whether it's in America or France or Indonesia. But why would they use the same word? Well, because it's you would be playing a game. There is something childlike about it. You're trying to find. And I, I don't mean like a who's line game. I mean like a what is the game of the scene? What is someone trying to achieve? But why isn't the and, word essence or something? Find the essence. Like why is yeah, it game? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, listen. If any, if if there's a someone super, a super nerd out there who's going to research it chances are they're listening to this so get on that and get back to us <laughs> yeah now i'm going to find out oh yeah they've been using in the 1600s the clown college in uh, rome i mean maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe commedia dell'arte i mean that maybe they had some sort of game well there is a lot of uh i i dell worked a lot with commedia dell'arte okay um and i actually did a uh 
a mask show, which I think you could say is Comedia dell'arte, right? Isn't okay. it? Yeah, Where, right. I'm you sure choose you... a mask yeah. and it has an expression on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was definitely links that way. And, and that was the great thing about Dell. He, w- he was a scholar of the world, not just comedy. So he would bring in... We, one thing he did, which a lot of my contemporaries would make fun of, is he did these American, Native American Indian chants sometimes. We would do it for like, we'd turn down the lights and chant like Indians for an hour in the dark. And you're like, what the fuck am I doing? I, I want to be doing comedy. Why am I chanting in the yeah, dark? Yeah. But then, maybe not every every experiment, but experiment like that, you go, we're developing group mind. We yeah. are. Okay. We're learning to work as a group here and learning to share. I, I had a theater teacher once, maybe 20 years ago, who we went in for a class and everyone just washed each other's feet. Oh, and we were like, I would have loved that class. Is this, uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, there was no there was no kind of uh, suspicion about it at the time in the way that it probably right. would be now. But it was like, is this a drama class? And you go, well, there is something that you're recognizing about the mm-hmm. the sort of slowness and the care with which you would mm-hmm. wash someone who's not even necessarily your friend. You yeah, go, there's a lot of emotions I guess there. There's some theater <laughs> happening there, you know. There's something. So, so you you referred earlier on to the fact that Dell was giving you something you could use, mm-hmm. and I think that I'm I'm interested in, in drilling into that a little bit more. Like, can you give us an example of something that you felt you took out of a Dell class? as opposed to any other class where you come out and went, oh, I've got some knowledge now. I feel like I've had teachers like that or a bit like that where you go, oh, that's just the machinery of my brain has clicked now mm-hmm. and I understand something more more deeply. Well, one, the most basic one, which pretty much every improv school shares, is the phrase, yes, and. Of course. And having been a rookie at improv, having been a teacher at improv and having been a teacher as a substitute teacher in the public school systems. And when I'm substitute teaching played with improv with children from kindergarten to high school, like every once in a while I'd go, we're going to just do improv, improv today, put down your books. Cause that's what I knew. And I knew they'd have fun doing it. <laughs> it was going, yeah, we got better again. Right. Do improv. <laughs> we got the guy with the crazy hair again. Um, but, uh, what you notice is people have this natural, uh, what's the word, predilection to go to the word no, to say no. And it's crazy. I say they, excuse me, say no more quickly than they say yes. And uh, I don't know if they think it's going to get a laugh quicker or, or what, but I know it's out there. And it's one of the, it's one of the most common, easy building blocks of learning improv to explain to someone. If you, if they introduce a concept and you say no to the concept, then the scene's over. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. Or worse, if you deny the reality of what I'm saying, that's called denial. Another way of not playing yes and. If I say a doctor and you go. Hey, grocer, why are you being a, saying you're a doctor? Then you've ruined my idea for whatever the scene was we could have started. Also, I never trust you again. Yeah, yeah. Because you've undercut my initiation. Um, but as, as easy as that is to say, yes, and it, it's a lot harder to actually do. And then people kind of misunderstand it of you say yes to everything. So if I go jump off a cliff, yes. It's like, no, I still need you to be grounded. 
And in the scene, my character wants you to jump off the cliff, but my, me as the comedian, the game we're playing, I don't want you to jump off the sure. cliff. I need to say yes to you, the performer, not yes, you, the character. Exactly. Yeah. It takes a while for people to get that. And because beginner improvisers will just say yes to everything and scenes become really silly that way. And, yeah. Okay. And some, I would argue some theaters, the veterans are doing that too. And I don't like it. I'm like, you have to be grounded. And that was another thing Dell taught us. This phrase play at the top of your intelligence. And people misunderstand that phrase a lot. They think it means, uh, bring all the, smart references and the trivial things you know about any topic into any scene. That's not what it means. It means play the scene the way you would play it in the scenario. So if you're playing a doctor, you and I probably didn't go to medical school, right? So we can't, we don't have all the knowledge of a real doctor, but we can still play a doctor at the top of our intelligence the best we can. Just like if you got a scene in a show that was in a hospital you could still play the doctor without having medical knowledge sure. just by reading your lines. So the same thing, you can still play at the top of your intelligence, the best you just react the way you would, if you were a doctor in this situation, I don't need you to throw out a bunch of medical terms to prove you're a doctor. That's not the intelligence I'm looking for. I'm looking for you to be grounded. So the most, one of the most common notes I give when I'm teaching is I'll go, all right, stop the scene. Is that really how you would reacted to what he just said? Would you have jumped off the cliff? No, of course you wouldn't. You would die if you jumped off the cliff. So play at the top of your intelligence and say, okay. no, I'm not jumping off the top of the cliff. Off the cliff. Why would I do that? Just react the way you would, and the scene will go much better. Even if you think, and a lot of people think when they're beginning, everything that comes out of my mouth has to be funny. Nope. If you're, if you're grounding, that's all I was doing today, right? Mm -hmm. I was just grounding the whole mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And a non-improviser isn't caring that I'm doing that or maybe even observing that. But that was the skill I was bringing in is, is any absurd thing that was said, I tried to ground it back in reality. And that's what we call justification. Justify why that absurd thing can exist in reality. If you don't exist it, if you don't justify it, then it's just absurdity. And I'm not a fan of comedy that's just absurd. Like even Monty Python, which people called absurd, I would argue it was justified absurdity. It was always, it always linked back to some truth in our yeah, it's world. It's not just random. Right. Yeah, sure. So even if it's philosophers racing each other or whatever, we, we can take some string of it back to a reality, which is making us, and that's why we're laughing at it. And that's what Dell would try to find. What's the truth of that? Mm. Let's try to milk the truth of that for comedy. Cause that's what the audience is going to relate to and go, Oh, I get that truth. And here's how they're shining light on a particular part of this truth. They're cranking up this little part of the truth. That's the game. So we call that the unusual thing. What's the unusual thing. And let's focus on that. And that's all a stand-up does. They'll so they'll set they'll throw out a top and go, hey, we all know about going through the TSA at the airport, right? So that's the truth. And they'll go, you, you know, when they ask you those questions, when you go through the line, ask you how your day is, no everyone knows that truth. And then the comedian will just focus on that. And and then he'll go, what if? And then he'll do a what if and make it just a little bit more absurd to show you the absurdity that that thing already has in our life, right? But the first thing the stand-up does is let you get you on board, as I like to say. It's like, 
Let me get the audience on board. Okay, now you're on board with what I'm talking about. Now let me point at the unusual thing, and now let me crank that unusual thing up a few beats, and that's my stand-up. And that's the same way improv works, too. Does does stand- And I would say improv does not work that way. Okay. Oh, you make a distinction between the actual, the term improv and improv. Well, it's a whole, or you people mean will say, think it's the same thing. And I'm like, it's not. They're just, what can I compare it to? It's like hip hop and country. They're both music, but they're just not created in the same way at all. They might both have lyrics, but they're not created in the same way at all. And so the, the distinction you drew before was that uh, the Johnstonian model is about narrative and about story. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a similar distinction? Is there like a parallel distinction to be drawn in, now in terms of the process? Like be, uh, the, the process is aiming at story, whereas your process is aiming at comedy. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That sounds snobby to say, and I'm sure an impro person would argue with me and say, my story is funny. What are you talking about? Sure. But I would say to them, if <laughs> this is what I always say. Yeah. Because there's a lot of outside impro just in whatever you'd call our type of improv. I think there's improv teams who say, oh, we do stories too. They wouldn't call it impro. They'd say, we have a narrative structure. Mm. And I'd say, if you have a narrative structure, like we do a form called the movie that Dell worked with us on, where we take the structure of a any movie, a baseball movie. But uh, we weren't doing a parody of baseball movies. We were using the structure of a baseball movie to do scenes that we all recognize. And when all and within all those scenes, we try to find an unusual thing and find a game in all those scenes. But we weren't concerned with telling a story sure. that anyone would be interested in. We're, we're like, we're going to tell the baseball movie story everybody knows. We're going to tell the Western story everybody knows. Because the archetype allows you to get yes. on the same page so we don't and have listen to, Exactly, and we don't have to worry about coming up with the story. And I say... To people who say we we improvise narratives, I'm like, oh yeah, are they interesting? <laughs> Can you tell them the next day to somebody? Because if they're good, you should be able to tell them the next day to someone, right? And improv used to have that reputation of, oh, you got to be there. I yeah. hate that. If you got to be there, it wasn't that funny. My podcast, you don't have to be there. Obviously, we tape it and you can listen to it uh, five years later. Yeah. So you didn't have to be there, and it was still funny. If you think you're doing narrative improv, I think you're saying the story is worthwhile. If it's worthwhile, you should be able to say it the next day. And if if you're able to improvise a story or a movie or whatever, holy shit, you're amazing. Most writers have to spend six months on a movie, but you can just improvise and it's great in 30 minutes. That's fucking amazing to me. So great job, Impro. You guys can do what writers, it takes them months to do. You can do like that. I don't buy that. Why does that frustrate you though? Because I don't, I've never seen it. And I've said yeah. many times, send me a tape. I'll send you a tape of my improv. It's it's obnoxious, I know. But, but, so, but, but I, I've been, I don't do that anymore, but back in my 30s when I was very... It was like gangs. Oh, uh, was it? Oh, yeah. I okay. would yell at short formers. I have a memory of yelling at a short former on the snowy streets of New York. Like, short form sucks, you motherfucker. <laughs> just getting really angry about it because it also is about who gets to be on TV, too. Like, name a long form improv show on TV. You can't. 
so that was our frustration too. We wanted to be on TV and only short form was getting on TV. Ah, is that is that the basis of it? Because that like yeah. there's real anger there. That's you know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like the, the gang thing, that separation that has to be motivated by something. And I guess oh, yeah. TV, life changing amounts of money, life career changing opportunities. Believe me, I have pitched many a show through my however long I've been doing this. Probably every three years, I, I pitch a, an improv show where they try to make it into a short form show because they want all the bells and whistles, and it just it frustrates you. Do you feel like a success? <laughs> um, my six year old daughter makes me a success, Stuart. That's a, that's a wonderful American. Now we can stop. <laughs> uh, does any comedian feel a success? I don't know. I, I I feel I'm a success in that I make money off of comedy enough that I can keep doing it. And my thing is I like to experiment. Like even the improper humans, we kind of skip past this, but with I wasn't working with improvisers per se, so mm-hmm. we decided to do a concept episode where I interviewed them as industry people. So I like I like experiments. I like doing that. I like having that freedom to say, I'm going to try doing this thing today. So I find success in that. That might not be fame or money success, mm-hmm. but the ability to do that, I think, is success on one level because not everybody has that. So there's that level. I do want a money success level. I guess that's all relative to how old you are in your 20s, you know. $10,000 can be amazing, but in your 50s, it's not. <laughs> yeah. So that that's always changing. Um, and then there's like fame stuff. Like when I was younger, I was like, I want to be famous and da, 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 da. I'm, I'm, I think I'm mature enough that I don't need whatever that, whatever 20-year-old Matt Besser thought that was. And I don't think I ever thought like, I need to be a star of a movie like Adam Sandler. I don't think I ever thought that, but I thought, I would like to be the third banana on a sitcom. Sure. Like, and I still would like to be, but I don't look at it as I'm failing till I get that, I guess. Yeah. To answer your question. Yeah. Do you, I mean, you, uh, but you were asking about improv. I feel like in improv, yes, I'm a success, but what does that mean in improv? Uh, is my type of improv a success? No, because there's never been a long form show on uh, television anywhere. We've had Ascat on as a special twice, but it's never been. Ah, I saw it on YouTube and I assumed it was part of a series. They were just specials. We've had two different ones. One was made by Bravo a long time ago. I feel like in 2000 or something. I think that must have been the one I saw, yeah. And then there was another one, um, but it's also on YouTube, that we made at our theater and we made it uh, with a production company, Shout Factory. And then Comedy Central bought it as a special and they ran it a few times. So it it was on Comedy Central as a special and the other one was on Bravo as a special, but never as a series. Why not? What, you I have, have a lot of cynical reasons. To give me your cynical theories as to why not. Because the one I saw, and I couldn't tell you which one it was. I didn't recognize the, the venue, obviously. Uh, was I, Tina Fey in it? Uh, yes. That was the first one. That was the first one. I was crying laughing in five minutes. And that wasn't as good as the second one. Ah, I'll watch the second one as well on YouTube. The, it was really we were, funny. We were, uh, we were really uptight that night because it was being filmed. Yeah. And it wasn't our stage either. And we were used to always doing it on our stage. It was like on a stage, a TV stage, which are terrible. 
It was an okay. It was okay. I, I thought the second one was on our stage and we were much more comfortable. So I like that one a little bit better. And I still feel like if we got in a series, that's when it would get good because you have to get used to the TV aspect of it. Is TV um, too scared to take the risk of people improvising? Well, is it a what I've branding heard, issue? What is it? Well, one thing is they want a lot of bells and whistles. And if you've seen the improv shows that have, I don't know what's on in UK per se, but it's funny how we'll get, here's an improv show from Australia. Here's one from Japan, like places I'm like, I have to get an improv show from fucking Japan and it started in Chicago where I was and I got to get a format from another fucking country. I don't think that makes me xenophobic. It's like, (laughs) is there other format to it or is it just simply the fact it's exotic and that's why it gets. No, there is. There's huge format to it. And to me, there's so many bells and whistles. There was one format. I can't remember the names of these shows. There was one. And I'm sure a couple of these probably do come from Britain. There was one where the improvisers are on a stage that's at an angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And the angle of the stage keeps changing through the whole show. So they're sliding down it. Yeah. And then they'll add like soap suds or slime, whatever the fuck. Yeah. You're going to wear something on your head. And all of this stuff is, it angers you because it's It's the purity of your basic thing. You're like, this thing that I do is vital and important and simple. Why don't you just fucking do that? Yes. And also what the fuck is that? Who enjoys that? I don't, I don't even know if I respect a person who wants to see someone do improv and slide down a stage of soap suds. Sure. What am I, 13? Every time I've spoken to anyone, this is this podcast is in its th- uh, third century of episodes, and uh, uh, everyone on TV I've ever spoken to about this has basically said, oh, long-form conversations that follow a thing. Could we just have the seven minutes where they cry? <laughs> no, you can't have that. This is this is its own thing. Oh, the podcast aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I suppose I empathize in some small way with like, no, th- this thing is perfectly good like I do it. Right. Why don't you do that? The other aspect is if you're in development, if you're on the development side of TV, you're used to reading scripts and giving notes and going sure. back and forth. And by the time it's showtime, everybody up the ladder has approved this script. So if and it fails, contributed to it in some small way. And also if it fails, yeah. everybody saw it. Don't blame me. We all saw this. We all gave notes. Not my fault it yeah. failed. But an improv group... If I'm the developer and I say to the, the people above me, believe me, the UCB should have a show. They do great. Let's do this. And it doesn't do well. There was no scripts to judge. All It's all on that one person. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. That's one of my cynical yeah, takes well that, on it. That is how, you know, spotting those things, like who to whose advantage is it in TV if it works? Just the one person that, that booked it. And that's, yeah, of course. But it'd be but you really think, advantaged because think of how little money it takes compared to making a sitcom. Nothing. And you would think now with the the incredibly vast amount of streaming services, subscription services, channels, you know, I mean, could, could you? I literally last week with my manager, a couple of new streaming services, because anytime there's someone new in the game, I'm like, let's pitch them ass cattle. Let's pitch yep. them improv for humans. Let's pitch them something like that. And he was like, oh, no problem. Because I also had a great cast attached. Usually that'll change anybody's name or mind. And uh, I just got back work two days ago of these two companies. They're both huge. They're not doing sketch or improv. Those are two huge words just to completely write off. We're not doing sketch or improv. 
It's like, really? You just don't even want to hear any pitch on those two huge genres of comedy. Could you brute force it with huge names? Could you, could, you know what I mean? Like the amount of people names. But even whose line? Like it needed in the United States, it needed Drew Carey to kind of. That's and how ridiculous. We did have two versions. We had Clive Anderson. I knew there was two different shows. Well, you guys came first, but yeah. Did we really? Yeah. I was assuming we stole it from you. Oh, no way. Oh, yeah. Okay. I actually auditioned for the dude who, the producer of it at one point. They were doing some new Who's Line. It wasn't Who's Line, but it was like a spinoff of it. And that producer guy, I believe he's British, was was in Chicago. And I came into the room. Oh, no, I think I was, I was in New York. I was part of UCB at that point. And, and I came into the room and he goes, he goes, how are you doing? And I just should have gone, fine. But instead, and I, it, as the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, what am I saying? I said, uh, well, I'm here auditioning for a short form show, so I can't be doing that great or something like that. Yeah, nice move, man. <laughs> I was like, why did I even come if I'm going to say something like that out loud? Uh, but anyway, no, you guys invented that, that, that format. I spoke to someone who... Uh, but, uh, I'm sorry, my, my point was we needed Drew Carey, who was a stand-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who doesn't know how to improvise. Sure. He, had, he had to be yeah, that's like the host of that show for it to be a sold. A simple format that will ground it with a talent, with a name, in order that they take the risks. And even then, something like Who's Line, it's because it's games, it's format, 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 and this mm-hmm. is how it looks. Mm-hmm. And you can... Everyone, everyone up the ladder can have an opinion on mm-hmm. the order of the games and where they sit and all that and stuff. They write those scenes anyway. No. Yeah. I don't Sorry, hear folks. That. Sorry, folks. They don't write them as much as they know what everybody does the best. Okay. Like they'll know, okay, you can do this thing. So we're going to come up with a game that feeds, of course, because this feeds is... your thing into that. Of course. Of course. Heartbreaking. So it's not even true improv, folks. Sorry to tell you. Do you think that you have sabotaged yourself? I'm coming yourself off so with, uh, snobby. <laughs> Listen, you're entitled to be snobby. You're in the position, you know what I mean? You, you were responsible with your co-conspirators mm-hmm. for UCB, which is like this mm-hmm. enormous, it's a life-changing thing which has spawned uh, venues and schools and you've taught people and you've enlivened people and, you know, you've become your own version of Del Close. Yeah, up to the point where I don't get work as just like Dell didn't. <laughs> well, this is my question. Have you, do you feel you sabotaged yourself with like, with responses to that guy? Like, but you said the word obnoxious. Like You've I, said the I, word I, obnoxious a few times. Well, it's maybe because obnoxious story is the most interesting. I, I, I don't, I'm, believe me, folks, I'm not walking into every audition like that. <laughs> sure. I'm kissing ass and bending over backwards like every other actor. But at that point, I think we had just had Cat rejected from being a TV show. So I was very bitter about short form and about this guy in particular, since he was the main guy of short form. Understandably. I think I have more. So I don't think I'm a guy who burns bridges like that, if that's your question. But I think maybe being a founder of the UCB theater this is, you're getting my bitter sides. This is when I cry. Uh, like, I'll get introed on stage a lot of, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Matt Besser, the founder of the UCB Theater. And I hate that as an intro. It's gotten to the point where I'm like, can you please not say I'm the founder of UCB Theater? I'm like, introduce me for my podcast. Because mm. I never dreamed of, I'm going to grow up and own a theater. It was never my dream. It's still not my dream. 
I'm proud of it, but I don't, I don't like that. That's what defines me. I'd much be better defined for the bit I did at Annie Kindler's show last night mm. than the founder of UCB. Cause I feel like I like comedy, you know, I love my theater, but that's not what I set out to be in life. And that's not, I don't wake up in the morning going, how am I going to find joy for my theater today? I, I think what comedy am I going to work on today? So as proud as I am of it, it's, it's come to define me more than my comedy. And that, that is a frustration. I had a, a friend I was chatting to who's at this festival who trained at uh, UCB. There's more than one venue, is that right? There's more than one theatre? There's four, yeah. There's four. And he said that uh, you would occasionally, he was scared to uh, ask you whether the peaches you left uh, by the foyer, he was in the foyer, you walked past and left some peaches and kept walking and everyone let the peaches rot because they were too scared to ask if the peaches were intended to be a gift. Okay. <laughs> Let me back up on this. That is not about me. That is Matt Walsh, my partner, who has peaches in his yard and harvests his peaches. Oh. Walsh just gave me some peaches. Okay. Uh, so I don't, so I don't like this peaches story, folks. I don't have a peach tree. All I did dis- not bring any peaches All I'm anyone. describing, I think the point of the story is my friend said, he was like, oh, you got Matt Besser. Oh, my God. It's completely from this position of really respecting you. And I was like, there's something in your voice. You sound like you're scared of him. And you go, well, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a force, right? He's a... I do have a Dell Close reputation of maybe not the genius part, but the no-nonsense part as a teacher. I did, as a teacher, decide I want to I give what Dell gave to me, which was uh, honesty, even if it was brutal. So I, and when the four of us, the UCB, started teaching classes and started teaching, I was like, I want upper levels only. I don't want 101s. Because I do want, because every 101 is terrified, and I don't want to be that way. To a 101, you mean a, a beginner. total novice, yeah. I want the 401s. I want the advanced people so I can be like Dell. And if they're if the scene's bad, I want to be able to tell them they're bad and they're not going to get their feelings hurt. Whereas if you're a one-on-one, you will. So I took that, I took his mantle, I, I will admit to that, of uh of being the harsh teacher, but I did it on purpose. I feel like it's ne- necessary. I went through a lot of at Second City and other schools of people being too coddling. And we'd do a scene that was terrible, and they'd go, that was great, guys. And there's this yeah. kind of hippy-dippy Montessori school. Everything's great. All improv is great. Just try hard. And I hated that. And I was, especially since I had one foot in stand-up at the same time, which isn't that way at all. Mm-hmm. Like, stand-up doesn't give you any coddling. <laughs> it's like, the stand-ups don't give you calling, The audience doesn't. The bookers don't. It's just like, you better fucking prove yourself you're dead. Yeah. So I had that mindset a little bit. So I hated like, no, not all improv is good. And this sucks. And why did you tell me it was good? When we got to Dell, he would go, we'd be three lines into a scene. All right. Stop, stop, stop. You were acting like a complete moron there. Would you ever act like that in real, you know? And I was like, Ugh. and everyone I know who's with him has a story of Dell, you know, taking them to task and it changing their life for the better or their improv life for the better of like, he taught me to listen. Like one time I was on stage, once again, my ego thinking I'm better than this other improviser up here. And this is when I've been doing it a few years. Uh, 
and I'd gone back to do a Dell class just for fun. And uh, in my head, I was thinking, I'm better than every improviser in this class. They're lucky to be on stage with me. And some kid was on stage with me, and we were doing a scene, and Dell stopped the scene. I was like, he's about to ream this kid. And he reamed me instead. And he told me you weren't listening to him in the scene. I had crucified the guy. I'd stuck his, both his arms up on a cross and I'd stuck a sandwich in his mouth. So he literally couldn't talk. <laughs> He's like, you stuck a sandwich in his mouth. You nailed his arm. So he can't take the sandwich out. So you're basically up there doing stand up because your partner can't talk if he's, unless he's going to deny your reality. And I'm like, oh, you're right. And why don't you listen to other people? And I was like, blah, blah. and once he dressed me down, I was like, he's right. And I didn't start doing that. And I yeah. did snap my ego. And that was good. So, uh, I, I do like, I don't mind that reputation as a teacher anyway. Do you, do you still have, when you're improvising now in the podcast or on stage when you're doing ASCAT, whatever, do you still recognize bad habits in your own improv? Presumably you're not at a stage now whereby everything, you, you're simply a vessel and it all flows through well, you. Bad mind. habits would be more lazy habits, I think, than rookie mistake kind of stuff. Oh, It'd God. be like... Uh, bringing out a bag of tricks like like there's certain characters i just like doing i like doing my nazi guy so i might do it when it uh, it wasn't organic necessarily <laughs> we in, to do we it we were in belgium uh, right. not not during the war <laughs> you know? right right yeah, so okay. it's like i try not to do that you'll do, you'll make a joke that undercuts the scene because you just like that joke's just hanging out there yeah. you just yeah. want to fucking make it but then it undercuts the reality but if you do that too much, people, you'll get known as a stage hog or people won't like some of that. And like I said, the audiences don't necessarily realize that. So we'll have teams where maybe theoretically the funniest guy on the team is the worst improviser. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you're getting a lot of laughs, but your team doesn't trust you. It's like when you're and I know that hosting works differently in the US, but in the UK, if you're the MC, you you know, you're you're often paid best or paid equally to the headline yeah. and you're on and off throughout the night. And there's a thing whereby there's two schools of thought about whether the MC is there to serve the show rather than be the best thing on the show. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, great, the MC's nicked the gig. You know, well, they, like, they've kind of stolen it. Because... Well, like, I, uh, I'm i doing an act right now that's all, my stand-up is all weed-based. It's all about marijuana. It's an hour on fucking marijuana. Right? This is the 420 show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I let the MC know because I don't want the MC doing marijuana material right before my act. And I think some MCs, because stand-up can be ruthless, or stand-ups will know, I know he's about to do his pop material, so I'm going to get my pop material out first. Yeah, okay. And that's very selfish, I think. Where sure, it's like, sure. as the MC, you should allow me to have the first pop material in the show, and then after my set, follow up with your own. Yeah, instead right. Instead of undercutting mine. Yeah. And, and I, I would say most guys are good enough to not do that, but I'll see that competitive kind of thing every once in a while where it's like, oh, you know that last that next guy going up is going to do that kind of thing, so you got your stuff out first. That's obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given that we have this opportunity to hear from someone who has kind of lived and breathed improv for years and years, what other kinds of... What like are there other bad habits you see pro guys doing without mentioning any names? Pro men and women doing that you like? I'm just thinking from the perspective yeah, of someone who's a learning few, improv. There's a moment. few people who I'd say are known 
as being great improvisers. So I'd say they're not great improvisers. They're just really funny. Okay. Um, Cause I wouldn't trust being on stage with them. And yeah. in fact, sometimes they'll get booked for ASCAT and I'll go, I'm not showing up tonight because I don't want to be on stage with them because they're selfish. And does it benefit them? Can do yeah. the good guys, the yes. bad guys sometimes finish first because oh, yeah. they get the laughs, they get yes. known for being funny and only you or a few other people in the yes. room notice what they're doing. Sometimes they don't even know. Sometimes they don't even know they're doing something uh, bad. They, or they don't even care to, to parse what the good improv is. The good improviser is going to, not be funny sometimes because they're servicing someone else's joke. They're being a straight man. Um, if you listen to my podcast, I think you'll see the people who come back are good at being both. <clears throat> they can be the funny person or be a straight man. Um, I point to a guy like, uh, you know, Drew Tarver is, he's a, he's a really funny young guy on a group called big grande right now. And he's now the star of a show on comedy central called the other two. He's one of the two leads. And this guy can be so fucking silly and funny. He's like one of those guys, like there's certain comedians who they just say anything and the audience is laughing and they can be super silly and the audience is laughing. Um, and he could get away with doing that all the time, but he doesn't. He's a good straight man too. He knows when to not be silly and to recognize the game isn't about him and just work at the top of intelligence to serve the game and not be silly. And so that's why I appreciate him. Cause I know he could do anything. He can say anything, get away with it. He can just talk. He can read the phone book, you know, um, that expression doesn't work anymore. does it. Cause there's no <laughs> phone books, but, uh, uh, yeah. So yeah. The, the, and there's guys who I'd say are famous and funny and I can't be on stage with cause they'll undercut you at a moment's notice to get a joke out. And the audience doesn't know because they are getting a joke out. It is funny. It's, it might be the funniest thing said that night. But if it undercuts something we we're building, why do I want to perform with you? Yeah. <clears throat> what can you see happening to the industry? You talked. We started off talking about the boom in the 80s. And obviously comedy has been through a huge kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's continually being reborn and changing. Yeah. What do you think will happen with stand-up over the next 10, 20 years? And what do you think will happen with improv? Is there still enough? Can you make a living as an improv guy? Or or do you have to... The problem with making a living as an improv guy, you can't really tour, which I wish I could, even with my show, improv for humans. To get four people on the road is four times as expensive as one person. So we're sure. getting that one person's salary and splitting between four people. It just doesn't work. Um, so there's that problem with touring. Um I mean, we do do tours, we do college tours, but you just, there's not a margin of profit. So if you're my age, I can't do tours like that anymore. Uh, Stand-up, I don't see it ever going away. I don't see improv ever going away. It's more like how the growth or lack of growth is like, where is it in the places beyond live? We used to say just TV, but now it's all sorts of different kinds of platforms. So it's funny, like whatever, 10 years ago, web videos were all the hot rage. And I'm sure here just for laughs, everyone was making videos and making money off videos. And uh, that's where all the focus was. And now what is it this year? It's in the last couple of years, probably podcasts, like mm. what you're doing. Um, it's much more affordable to do a podcast than a web video, right? 
I think everyone's organically discovered that. Uh, there's too many podcasts right now. You you would like to feel just like any other any other genre of entertainment that has too many. Eventually, it settles out, and the and the people who are good and uh, will subsist and keep going. Um, so I think podcasting we're in a boom right now. I think it'll settle at some point because the, the advertisers don't know how to give the money out now because there's so many people. It's yeah. just kind of random how they buy ad time. Um, the streaming services, my hope is they'll take more chances because there's, they need more content and they can only buy up so many stars because that's what they're all doing now. Yeah. It's like, Apple starts a streaming service. They don't really have a point of view yet. So they're like, we'll just get some stars and put them in shows. And that's what it is. I feel like eventually they'll go, okay, we need some shows that don't have stars that are good. So then the streaming services will, that's where I'm hoping eventually long form improv can live. Yeah. Why shouldn't it? It's so, I don't know. It's, it's my constant bugaboo. Is that a British word? Bugaboo? Uh, bugbear. <laughs> bugbear. It might be your constant bugbear. <laughs> um, are you happy? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. Like I said earlier, I love being a comedian. I love festivals like this. I love I love doing shows that might not be my comfort zone. Um, that's why I've seen you at a couple of festivals. I really like doing the festivals. I yeah, like doing yeah. different types of shows. Um, so yeah, I find happiness, you know, my frustrations in life come from, uh, typical frustrations of life, disease, you know, bad things happening in families and stuff like that. But as far as my career goes, do I want to be on a sitcom and be successful? Yes, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to hold out and be the bitter guy, you know, do I want long form to be its own show? Yes, but I'm not irrational um so i'm not going to find my happiness from only that happening bringing me happiness <laughs> you're looking at me like you're unhappy Lord. no not at all i'm not at all i just felt you were about to uh put Turn. a bu- put a bow on the end of the oh, I, didn't have a bow. I didn't have a bow i'm just wondering how many i guess those in my head going because i'm sure you you probably uh, interview more stand-ups than anything yeah and i'm thinking uh that's such an angry life. Like if you get into that life around the road, especially, and it's a lot of alone time and it's ruined a lot of people, that road life, you know, and it, it does cause bitterness and uh, it's much tougher on the psyche, I think, being a, a stand-up. So I could see an honest answer being I'm not happy from a sure. lot of stand-ups. Sure, Uh but I, I could see them arguing with me going, I love being on the road and that's my life and yeah, whatever. But you get to play with people and you never need to sit and write. Well, I do write. But you do as well. But, uh, as well. but yeah, I mean. And I enjoyed the. Uh, people the six... talk about the difference between a green room, an improv green room and a stand up green room. You oh, can imagine. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed in both. The, the six phases of stand up, that album that's uh, currently available. Is this the six. The six greatest sets in the history of stand-up. Yeah, I, that that that's one of my stand-up albums where I did. They're all in character. I do like uh, the Stuttering King. Uh, it's King, uh, George the Third. Yeah, George the Sixth. 
Yeah. And doing stand up. I do Bjork doing stand up. I do the Pope doing stand up. I do Satan roasting the baby Jesus. And I, it's supposed the best stand up sets in the history of the world. And it's go look on Amazon. I think it only has like a couple of reviews, but one of the reviews is a one star review that says, I was under the impression that this would be six different stand <laughs> Like he expected Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, Joan Rivers. And we got Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're expecting to get the six best sets in stand up, they're not on this album. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. So that was Matt. Thank you very much to Matt Besser for coming onto the show. MattBesser.com or at Matt Besser all over social media. And do look out for his new special, Pot Humor. Uh, that's coming up soon wherever you... That's available now, in fact, wherever you get your video on demand. And if you're listening outside of America, you might need to do some sort of wangling to pretend you're inside America. I don't know. Find out for yourself. Um, that's all of that. Thank you, as ever, to Nathan Wood for editing, uploading, producing the show. Thanks to J.K. Crossland for uh, logging. Your podcast consultant was Peter Dobbing, and the music was by Rob Smouten. Now, uh, I will post amble at you what... Oh, I know what I'm going to talk about. So if you care to stick around for a little post amble, then uh, let's do that now. But otherwise, that concludes the podcast, and uh, we'll be back next week with Greg Turkington, a.k.a. America's funny man, Neil Hamburger. That's an absolute doozy of an episode, and I suspect rather a long edit. Bye for now. Okay, so if you stuck around, thanks for sticking around. Someone asked a question on the Facebook group about um, the lost episodes, and uh, someone said, was there one with Nat Metcalf? There wasn't one with Nathaniel Metcalf. Brilliant comic though he is. And um, I think he appeared on an episode of Redacted, a live show of Redacted, which uh, wasn't released. But I probably it's probably diggable, outable somewhere. I might put that on the Insiders feed when I get to it. Also, there's an episode with Omid Jalili, which was at a book festival. You might remember, this is years ago now. It was at the Chortle Book Festival, and I interviewed, Comedy Book Festival. I interviewed him, and we sort of planned to do it as a co-pro and also release it as a com-com. But, um, that was a confusing sentence. But uh, it just was too book-oriented to be strictly a com-com. So we said, hey, let's do it again some of the time. And we haven't got round to that yet. So there is that one. And if I can find it, this must be from three years ago now, three Montreals ago. There's a lovely, warm, rambly episode with the fabulous K. Trevor Wilson, who you may know from Letterkenny. And if you're not watching Letterkenny, just watch the first five minutes of the first episode of Letterkenny. All one word. Um, L-E-T-E-E-R-K-E-N-N-Y, I think. Um, and oh my god it's absolutely brilliant so get stuck into that um i found that i've started using instagram a little bit more sort of as an experiment just to kind of learn how to use it I, the danger is i regard things like twitter you know if you've ever tweeted at me i regard twitter as an inbox i see everything and i reply to most things but i don't i'm not up there posting stuff because it just I don't want to. I think it really serves and suits people who want to constantly be broadcasting. Now, obviously, your relationship with me is that I constantly broadcast stuff once a week. But I like that. I like kind of doing it in one little blurt. I don't really want to feel chained to my phone and and feel as if I should be constantly uh, putting out content, man. Um, and then I, I was travelling yesterday, so I used Instagram a lot because I was, I was lonely, frankly. I uh, had left the house at five in the morning in order to get to Estonia. And um, I uh, had these sort of thoughts about, you know, oh, I should, I should buck up and use social media a bit more in my head. 
And um, I found that, and this isn't going to be news to anyone, I found that maybe because I follow, not exclusively, but mostly comedians, and maybe because the sorts of comedians who I follow are naturally, not even necessarily my friends, I've never really sat down and gone through my mates and followed all of them. Maybe I'm using it wrong. That would be a lovely conclusion to draw. But basically, I tend to follow people who are huge on Instagram because they're the people that pop up. You know, that Venn diagram of people I know whose work I like and who are huge on Instagram. People like... No, I'm not going to mention any names because I, I don't want to... There's, there's nothing... I feel negative about Instagram itself, not, not any individuals. But um, I do find that I got... I just... I was lonely and I, was, I, just, I just felt like I was fulfilling the curse of the of social media, whereby I thought, oh, I'd better, I better, I could post something. That'll make me feel a bit less alone. Here's my breakfast in a Wagamama. Side note, if you ever manage to get to Heathrow Airport before noon, there's a Wagamama there that does a breakfast menu and there's a sausage and nori omelette kind of roll. Oh my God. It, and sriracha, it's absolutely incredible. So yes, I took a picture of my food. What is this, 2006? Um... I, uh, oh, is that too early? Have I misplaced my, my Dateline reference? I've no idea. But I did, I just fulfilled the social media contract. What I did was, I, I felt lonely. I took a picture of my, <laughs> my actual breakfast, posted it, and then scrolled whilst I waited to see if anyone would react to it. I wasn't waiting, but I, um, but I, I was kind of additionally scrolling on my own in the airport. And I saw lots of my friends doing successful things and I became depressed. And it just made me laugh, actually, because I... The word actually suddenly makes that seem false, doesn't it? It made me laugh, actually. But it did. It actually made me laugh out loud at breakfast in a Wagamama in an airport because I thought, my God, I've, come, I've fallen hook, line and sinker for this. Instagram's no different from Twitter. It's all, you know, in terms of the machinations of... It draws you in with the promise of community and then you and then it spits you out. It's like going to a a celebrity party. You think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go to a celebrity party? And then you go to one. I imagine. I mean, I'm occasionally in green rooms after recording of TV shows and it's a bit like celebs. And actually what it is, you're a real person and you're like, well, I'm not just going to walk up and say hello to a celebrity. And anyway, they're surrounded by a coterie of people hanging on their every word, just like social media. And um, it, it just, you know, you go to it, and you think, oh, I'd, I'd sort of rather be with the people I know in the corner, actually having a real experience. I think what, we, what we've learned here is that uh, I am undergoing the thing that everyone undergoes on first contact with social media, most of which happened about eight years ago. Um, but I just, it just seemed like such a, such a kind of perfect crystalline example of, I felt like I was in a training video of how not to use social media. Look at Stu. He's alone in an airport having breakfast. He's posted a thing. Now he's looking at more successful people than him, uh, have loads of people engage with their stuff and pat them on the back. Now he feels sad. Don't be like Stu. <laughs> so there's got to be a way to do it. And what I want to find is a way to use it in a way that makes me happy, that genuinely makes me laugh. Like the way that social media makes me happy. If you're friends with me on Facebook, with my private account on Facebook, you'll know that pretty much all I ever do is ask for general hive mind opinions on how to do efficient filing, how to lay a lino floor, whether a door needs to come off so that the lino floor could go under it, that kind of stuff. And I genuinely enjoy that. Maybe I'm in the wrong job. Maybe I should have some sort of um, amateur DIY YouTube channel. (laughs) But uh, 
there, there has like I enjoy that, and so so much of life I think is trying to join the dots between what you love to do and what you have to do. And I think if I could find, and this goes out to lots of comics who I am sure are struggling in exactly the same boat, or some of you will have, um, oh, not just comics in whatever walk of life, social media is sort of a part of everything now, isn't it? If you're a baker, you should have an Instagram account. If you're a, a, a grave digger, you probably get away with it. But um, you probably get away without, I mean to say. But uh, so most of us, I think, will be in the position of thinking, oh God, I should be doing this more. And, and, and here's a thought. What if they invent another 10 platforms? Have you got to fucking join all of those as well? Is, is it all going to be like my messaging apps on my phone now, where instead of just texts, for a, for a while it was just texts, and then it was texts and WhatsApp, and then it's texts and WhatsApp and Viber and Telegram. And there are certain friends of mine that only use one of those, so I have to use all of them. So they're perpetually on. So where does that end? Is it going to be 10 years from now? There's 150 different messaging apps and you've got to have them all. <laughs> it's like that Josh Whittacom joke about mini Argoses. Like with this, why don't you just wrap all of those text messaging apps in one bundle and we'll just call it texts? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Anyway, uh, that's some rambling thoughts from a hotel. I'm going to get outside soon. I'm going to edit this episode with Sheldon, upload it, and then I'm going to go and walk around a really, it's not torrential, but it is raining a bit. And it looks pretty cold and bleak, but I'm sure that Talon has got some lovely stuff to offer me. And here it's 20 to 1, and it's not starting to get dark, but it's threatening to start to get dark in maybe two hours or so. So I better get my skates on. Um, lovely to talk to you. <laughs> I feel like that's that, I've slipped into an accidental mode there of um, how you would normally end... Uh, uh, like an answer message. Lovely to talk to you. <laughs> Cheerio. Anyway, that'll be me. <laughs> um, is this just Stu goes mad in the hotel room? No, I'm absolutely fine. I'm sane. I'm getting things done. Uh, I have plugged my phone, uh, my MacBook charger into two different adapters and to get them to actually sit in the right place to fit the the plug socket here in the hotel room, I've had to balance them on a glass of water. And it only occurs to me now, I could have taken the water out of the glass, but it looks funnier balanced on there. Which in turn reminds me of being in Zurich with uh, lovely Phil Kay and uh, seeing him uh, blowing the... There was a hairdryer in the... Have I told you this before? There was a hairdryer in the bathroom. We were in his hotel room and the hairdryer was in the bathroom on a coil such that it could just about reach the toilet. And so he was flushing the toilet and blowing hot air into the, into the empty, just water in it, just clean water, into the toilet whilst flushing it and stirring the air around with the draft of the, the hairdryer whilst looking at me and saying, no one does this. <laughs> so um, I think it has turned into Stugo's man in a hotel. So that'll be me. I'll get off and uh, get on with my doings and you get on with doing your doings. And uh, tell you what, let's meet back together in a week for more of this.